Hello, and welcome to another episode of CCBJ Perspectives, providing access to leaders and influencers within the ever-evolving ecosystem of lawyers and legal professionals. Joe and Chris, this is Kristen Calvi, editor and publisher with Corporate Counsel Business Journal, host of our podcast, Perspectives. Thank you for taking the time today. To start us off, could you please share a bit about your backgrounds and the focus of your practice and where you see things leading going forward? Thank you, Kristen. Uh, this is Joe Falcone. I'm a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills in New York, and my practice focuses on regulatory and litigation matters. Relevant to the discussion today, I head the firm's efforts to advise clients regarding CFIUS, and I've advised both international and U.S. clients about the potential impact of CFIUS on proposed cross-border acquisitions and investments, and have represented clients before CFIUS and look forward to discussing various issues regarding the committee today. Hi, Kristen. I'm Chris Boyd. I'm an associate here at Herbert Smith Freehills in New York. Uh, like Joe, I, I work on a number of regulatory matters, including CFIUS, U.S. export controls, U.S. sanctions, and data privacy and security. Look forward to the discussion. Excellent. Thank you both. Um, and thank you for teaching me how to pronounce CFIUS one of the many acronyms that has been a mystery to me over the years um, because we see it in writing, but we don't really talk about it audibly very much. So to start off, for those of us who are unaware, what are the governing or participating entities within CFIUS and what role does the White House play in that entity? Thanks, Kristen. CFIUS is an interagency committee of the U.S. government that is charged with reviewing acquisitions of and certain investments in U.S. businesses by foreign businesses or investors to assess whether those acquisitions or investments could threaten or impair the national security of the United States. CFIUS itself is comprised of various U.S. government departments and offices, which Chris will talk about. Thank you, Joe. I think the first agency party should be aware of is the Treasury Department. Treasury is the chair of CFIUS, and in that role, Treasury, and specifically its Office of Investment Security, coordinates the overall CFIUS filing and review process. So for parties making a filing under CFIUS, Treasury is in many ways the face of the process. Treasury staff are the industry's primary point of contact, and they handle the day-to-day -day operations. The case management system, which is where you file, is hosted by Treasury, and Treasury is also responsible for publishing CFIUS guidance, such as FAQs. But more importantly, Treasury hosts the Office of Investment Security Monitoring and Enforcement, or the M&E Office, which we may get to talk about. The M&E Office is responsible for monitoring transactions that are not voluntarily reported to CFIUS, and generally oversees compliance and enforcement and penalties. The M&E Office has been fairly active lately, and hopefully we'll return to that later. While Treasury is important, there are also a number of other agencies within CFIUS that parties should be mindful of. Right, Joe? That's right. Uh, briefly, the other CFIUS member departments and offices are the departments of Commerce, Defense, Energy, Homeland Security, Justice, State Department, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, or OSTP, the Labor Department and the U.S. Director of National Intelligence are designated as non-voting members of CFIUS, but they will input into the national security review process. There are also 
five other White House offices that have observer roles and participate in CFIUS activities as appropriate and including the National Security Council. It's also common for CFIUS to seek inputs on and more of an ad hoc basis from other departments and agencies within the US government that don't have formal CFIUS membership status, but which may have sector specific expertise that can help inform the committee's consideration of a particular transaction. Overall, there's a lot more detail to CFIUS, but I think the, the bottom line is that the parties to a transaction that is under CFIUS review can expect to have an agency or regulator inputting into the review process, which has deep sector knowledge and perhaps even knowledge of the US business itself. Now, Kristen, you had also asked about the role of the White House in the CFIUS process. That could be a separate discussion in itself, but I think for our purposes, it may help to think of the White House role in two ways. While it is CFIUS that actually undertakes the national security reviews and can clear a transaction, the legal authority as to whether to block or unwind transaction or deal ultimately rests with the president. And we'll talk more about these authorities and powers in a bit. In addition, decisions regarding where the national security priorities of the US government and by extension CFIUS should focus in terms of, as examples, which business sectors may present greater national security concerns or which nations may present a heightened risk to US national security. These are going to be articulated by the White House after it takes into account a host of impacts, including national security, but also among others, economic, political, diplomatic, or trade issues. So in other words, the president will generally set the national security parameters based on a totality of factors, but by law, CFIUS is limited to review of the national security issues presented in a particular transaction. So could you please offer us a brief overview of CFIUS and how the agency impacts US entities, though focused on non-US or foreign acquisitions and investments? Yeah, as, as part of the overview, it might be helpful here to first cover off some of the key questions and issues we often deal with when approaching the CFIUS process. So first of all, the question to ask is, does CFIUS have jurisdiction over a deal? If it does, how do we assess whether the US businesses operations may present national security issues for CFIUS? When are the relatively new mandatory filing requirements triggered in a particular case? What is the timeframe for a CFIUS filing and review? And how does a CFIUS filing differ from other regulatory filings, such as pre-merger notifications that US-based companies and council may be more familiar with? So to unpack that a bit more, generally the first step to ask is, does CFIUS have authority to review the proposed transaction? And CFIUS has jurisdiction to conduct national security reviews of what are referred to in the regulations as covered transactions which broadly fall into two main areas. First, covered control transaction. And this means a transaction by which a foreign person, which is any foreign national, foreign company, or foreign government could gain control of a US business. Uh, transaction for CFIUS purposes is defined pretty broadly and includes mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, and other investments. Uh, second category, 
is non-controlling covered investments in certain U.S. businesses that deal in critical technologies, critical infrastructure, or sensitive data, which are known as TID, technology infrastructure data, TID U.S. businesses, to the extent that through the investment, the foreign investor is receiving, for example, board seats on the U.S. entity or access to or decision-making rights regarding the U.S. business's critical technology infrastructure or data. And we'll be coming back to those terms and those points uh, throughout our discussion, I think. So assuming that CFIUS jurisdiction exists, and as a practical matter, that jurisdiction is pretty broad, then as a U.S. company that may be contemplating a sale to or investments from foreign nationals or companies, the next step is to begin to assess whether the U.S. businesses' operations may present national security issues for CFIUS. And first, it's important to note when we're talking about a U.S. business, that U.S. business doesn't need to be the direct target of a transaction to trigger CFIUS jurisdiction. And this means that transactions between non-U.S. deal parties can still fall within CFIUS jurisdiction to the extent the transaction at completion would result in foreign control of the foreign target's current U.S. subsidiary. So with that said, the following are a few key questions that U.S.-based clients and their in-house teams can ask to help gauge whether their U.S. business and operations may present national security issues for CFIUS, regardless of whether the business is the direct or indirect target of the transaction. So first, does your business work with or handle critical technology, the critical infrastructure, or does it collect, maintain, or host sensitive personal data of U.S. citizens? And these are all defined terms under the regulations. We can also ask, what are the export control classification numbers or ECCNs of your product? This is important as the CFIUS regulations define critical technology with reference to a product's export control status. Does your business have offices or bricks and mortar facilities within close proximity to US military airport, seaport, or other regulated spaces? And CFIUS has developed an online mapping tool to help assess with this point. Does your business contract directly or indirectly with US government entities at the federal and even the state and local level? Is your business engaged otherwise in work that would be of interest to the US government and particularly with those areas of the government that have national security responsibilities? So having done the self-assessment, and if it looks like the proposed transaction is within CFIUS jurisdiction, the next step is often assessing whether a CFIUS filing is mandatory in connection with the particular transaction. And when is a filing mandatory? This is an important question uh, to consider because the penalties for failing to file with CFIUS in a mandatory filing scenario include a fine of up to the deal value. So again, this is a key part of, of, any, of any assessment. And generally there are two scenarios in which the mandatory filing obligation will arise. The first is where a foreign person acquires or invests in a TID U.S. business that, per the regulations, produces, designs, tests, manufactures, fabricates, or develops one or more critical technologies for which a U.S. export control license would be required in order to transfer that technology to a foreign person. And the second scenario is where a foreign person acquires 
what the regulations define as a substantial interest in any TID US business. And in turn, a foreign government has a substantial interest in the foreign acquiring person. And this is intended to cover transactions involving a state-owned enterprise. So a couple of points to note here for US counsel who may be more familiar with other US regulatory regimes such as pre-merger control. In CFIUS, there is no deal value threshold. And this means that CFIUS jurisdiction and filing requirements do not depend on the size or amount of the deal. Control for CFIUS purposes is defined in a somewhat unique way in that control exists where the transaction will enable the non-US acquirer to, and this is from the regulations, determine, direct, or decide important matters affecting the US business. Now, that being said, generally an acquisition of 10% or more of the outstanding voting interest in the US company is presumptively indicative of control for CFIUS purposes. One point to note here, Joe just discussed the two scenarios in which a mandatory filing is triggered. But there are instances where we conclude that uh, there is no mandatory filing obligation, but the deal parties should still consider a voluntary filing. That's right. I, un until reforms that came about starting in 2018, filing with CFIUS was strictly a voluntary scenario in that no laws were violated if parties to a transaction did not submit a covered transaction for CFIUS review though CFIUS retained the authority to investigate those deals and call them in for review if it felt it needed to address uh, national security issues. Even with mandatory filing requirements now in place, there still may be reasons for the parties to elect to make a voluntary filing, and an option for that still exists under the regulations, if they conclude that the transaction is a covered transaction, but it doesn't meet the formal criteria for a mandatory filing. And there are various reasons for this. First of all, a voluntary filing may be appropriate if the proposed transaction or investment presents national security issues that are likely to be of concern to CFIUS. If, for example, the U.S. business at issue would qualify as a TID U.S. business, its acquisition by a foreign entity may present security concerns that CFIUS would want to review, even if we're not in a formal mandatory filing scenario. Second, and, and related to that, a voluntary filing is in some ways, a, it can be thought of as a risk mitigation strategy. If your transaction is a covered transaction, then CFIUS has jurisdiction to review it, regardless of whether you file voluntarily or not. Since CFIUS can review and via the president unwind transactions post-closing, there remains a risk that CFIUS may investigate the transaction post-closing, which it is doing more frequently as we'll discuss uh, later. The only way to eliminate that risk and promote deal certainty is to file a voluntary notice or declaration with CFIUS and obtain clearance from CFIUS at the conclusion of the review period, as clearance after a CFIUS filing generally acts as a safe harbor against further CFIUS review. As a last point, going through the process and obtaining CFIUS clearance can position you for a future CFIUS review. Uh, this may apply more to foreign acquirers to the extent they can successfully navigate the CFIUS process and in doing so become more of a known quantity to CFIUS, but it can also have some relevance to U.S. companies. Thank you, Joe. And in terms of the timing and the, the CFIUS process itself, we, we should address the timeline for CFIUS filing. Council who are familiar with pre-merger filings in the United States 
the CFIUS timeline bears some resemblance. Um, in brief, step one, you submit a filing and a filing fee. The filing fee can be up to $300,000, depending on the total deal value. Step two, CFIUS will conduct its review, its initial review. That can last up to 45 days, but it could be short. It is shorter for a declaration. CFIUS has 30 days to review a declaration. Step three, CFIUS has the option to extend the initial review period if there are any unresolved national security concerns. And that extended period will reach 45 days and 15 more days if there are extraordinary circumstances. There's also an optional step four, which is very rarely invoked, and that's the 15-day presidential review period that follows the, the first three steps. Now, at the conclusion of this review, CFIUS will do one of three things, either clear the transaction, clear the transaction subject to mitigation conditions, or recommend to the president that the transaction be blocked. And this last outcome happens rarely. The vast majority of deal parties elect to abandon the transaction before step four, before presidential review. Mitigation conditions are negotiated between the parties and, and CFIUS during this process. Finally, we should note that all of the documents that you submit to CFIUS are given confidential treatment. For this reason, you're not going to find public decisions issued by CFIUS. The, the primary source of information that we have on the CFIUS process comes from CFIUS's annual report, which hopefully we'll have the chance to discuss. Chris, what are some of the points that distinguish the CFIUS process from pre-merger filings or other U.S. regulatory review regimes that people may be more familiar with? That's a good point. Thank you, Joe. Um, the, the things that I've just discussed are some broad similarities in terms of timing between a pre-merger filing and CFIUS. But there are also some key differences, and, and counsel and U.S. companies should really be aware of these because they may have significant impacts on costs and time as compared to what might be a more streamlined process, say, the pre-merger notification process. So first of all, the disclosure that's required of the parties in a CFIUS filing is focused on both the U.S. business and the non-U.S. acquirer or the investor, and this disclosure is more extensive. Second, before you file with CFIUS, the parties submit a draft of their filing to CFIUS, and CFIUS reviews the drafts and provides comments on the draft filing. The draft filing is called a Joint Voluntary Notice, or JVN. The parties then need to address those comments that, it, that CFIUS has given them prior to formally filing the JVN for CFIUS's review. A third point is that after you file with CFIUS, after you've submitted your JVN, CFIUS will send questions about the transaction. These are far more common than, for example, in the pre-merger process. Several rounds of questions from CFIUS are common. CFIUS also expects that parties will answer these questions promptly within three business days. So parties should really be prepared for follow-up once they've made their submission. And fourth, Unlike in the pre-merger context, where the U.S. antitrust authorities supply a form for the required filing, and all parties use the same form, a CFIUS filing may be made in two separate ways. Now, one of these I just referred to, that's the JVN, or the Joint Voluntary Notice, 
And the other is a short form filing that has a shorter review period. We referred to this earlier, and that's called a declaration. And these choices have strategic implications for the parties. For example, if CFIUS does not clear a transaction based on your short form declaration, CFIUS may and often does request, and in effect, this is a requirement, that parties file a JVN. The JVN also carries a filing fee. CFIUS is particularly likely to do this in transactions that involve, for example, a state-owned acquirer and where the transaction involves a TID U.S. business. So while a declaration can lead to a quicker approval in the right case, in many cases where the national security issues are more complicated, the declaration process may actually, as a practical matter, extend the timing of the overall review. Just a quick word on declarations. Submission of declarations is up. The 2020 report to Congress from CFIUS indicates that from 2019 to 2020, there was a 34% increase in the number of declarations filed. That's a substantial increase. Prior to February 2020, only transactions that were subject to mandatory filing requirements under CFIUS's pilot program were eligible to file via declaration. With the new regulations implemented last year, all parties now have access to this option. And as I noted earlier, it's generally a faster, cheaper method of filing. The review period is 30 days rather than 45, and the level of supporting documentation required is substantially less than in a JVN, or Joint Voluntary Notice, as discussed. Going forward, we expect the number of parties that elect to file declarations will increase further. For parties who may be subject to CFIUS jurisdiction, this is good news as it expands your options for filing. On the other hand, it's important to remember that if you expect there may be national security concerns raised by the transaction, filing via declaration may only delay the inevitable need to file a full JVN. In those situations, we might recommend against the declaration. So the choice between a JVN or declaration illustrates that your assessment of the national security risks may have strategic impl implications as you approach your filing. So talk to us about how CFIUS is relevant to US companies who are seeking foreign investment or looking to raise foreign capital? I think it can be very relevant. Uh, given CFIUS's authority, its expanded jurisdiction, the mandatory filing requirements we've just talked about, it's advisable for US companies to undertake a CFIUS assessment when contemplating or when engaging in a transaction with a foreign entity or when seeking investment from foreign persons. And as we'll talk about, uh, the CFIUS process really is an expansive one. Looking at it from the corporate perspective, it's not simply the general counsel's office that needs to be across these issues, but the general counsel also needs to intersect with the, for example, the chief information officer because so much of the CFIUS analysis deals with critical technologies. We'll need to be liaising with the business people to fully understand uh, where all the contracts, for example, why do we have contracts with government in particularly in potentially sensitive areas or particularly sensitive areas? Insofar as the finance team or the CFO are going to be liaising with foreign investors, some of the national security issues that we'll talk about with respect to foreign persons may be things they need to be across you know, before they begin that process. So with that in mind, I, I think we note a few steps that a U.S. company can take 
to assess the potential for CFIUS applicability to a given investment and to prepare for CFIUS review if that's required or else it's deemed advisable. And I think we can focus on, on three actions or, or assessment points. First is understanding how CFIUS undertakes its national security analysis and how, if at all, your transaction fits within that. Second is understanding your foreign buyer or investor or investors and how that entity or entities is likely to be viewed by CFIUS. And then as discussed earlier, it's really assessing yourself as the US company, which sounds simple, but requires an assessment of your operations and the intersection with technologies and export control and other areas that CFIUS deems important for national security. So as to the first, national security, when assessing the transaction or investments potential impact on US national security, CFIUS applies a three-part risk-based analysis. And that examines first, the threat potentially posed by the foreign acquirer. And here in the threat assessment, CFIUS reviews the foreign acquirer or investor's intent or capabilities and whether that could threaten US national security. Second is the vulnerability assessment, which looks at the vulnerability of the US business being sold. And this refers to whether the nature and operations of the US business could impact national security if it were under the control of a foreign actor. Think here of the US business's role in a particular supply chain, for example. And then third, CFIUS evaluates the potential national security consequences if the vulnerabilities were to be exploited by a foreign actor. Essentially, this is an assessment that takes into account the perceived threat and the, the vulnerabilities. Secondly, the US business needs to understand the foreign buyer or investor. In a sense, you're trying to gauge issues that CFIUS may focus on in a threat assessment. And in that regard, there may be uh, several questions to ask, including what does the foreign person do? Does the foreign person operate in an area of national security concern, noting that CFIUS has a really expansive definition of national security? It's not just defense, but it's, for example, semiconductors, transportation, telecom, energy, some aspect of financial services. Uh, in some cases, it can be the, the food or pharmaceutical supply chain and the like. Where is the foreign person from? At this point, CFIUS has not articulated a list of countries of concern for CFIUS purposes, but it's fair to say that there are members of the US government that tend to give more and higher scrutiny to acquirers or investors from certain nations, including, for example, China or Russia. Yeah. Another question is, is the foreign person state-owned or government-controlled? To the extent we're looking at funding through a private equity fund, uh, recent reforms created an exception from CFIUS jurisdiction for certain non-controlling covered investments by investment funds, provided that the foreign investor in the fund receives only standard passive limited partnership rights in the fund, and the fund itself is managed exclusively by a U.S. general partner. So to the extent this is a funding scenario, it will be important to assess whether the fund as structured and as it operates fits within this investment fund safe harbor. Do the foreign person's operations present a third party risk? So even if your acquirer or investor is not owned by an entity uh, from a jurisdiction uh, that may receive heightened CFIUS scrutiny, does it have affiliates or operations in those jurisdictions? I'm thinking about manufacturing, joint ventures, sales. Uh, does it transfer technology to its affiliates 
or operations in those jurisdictions. That would be something CFIUS may inquire into. Um, does the foreign person, the foreign investor already have a positive track record with CFIUS? So if your buyer or your investor has already been subjected to the CFIUS threat assessment in a prior deal that was cleared, that may tilt slightly in favor of clearance in the current transaction, subject to the vulnerabilities that your business as a US company may present and recognizing that CFIUS takes each deal on a case-by-case -case basis. And I note that I've probably discussed a lot about uh, the foreign person in the singular, but to the extent you're seeking investments from multiple unaffiliated foreign persons, you would have to undertake this uh, analysis with respect to each investor. It's important to point out that Joe's discussion just focused on the foreign acquirer, but the, the third topic that, that Joe mentioned earlier is we encourage clients to, to consider how they'll understand and assess, how CFIUS will understand and assess the client's own business, the U.S. business. This is a process that will bring in likely multiple elements within your business because CFIUS implicates sensitive personal data. You might have your CIO involved because CFIUS wants to look at the ultimate ownership of the investors, the foreign investors. You may have your general counsel and CFO involved in, in, the, in understanding the financing. So there are multiple elements of the business that will need to make this assessment. But the key question is to assess your business operations and capabilities and assess where your business would likely fit on CFIUS's vulnerability assessment continuum. So do you qualify as a TID US business? Just to recall, we, we mentioned this earlier, a TID US business is one that does one of three things. It produces, designs, tests, manufactures, fabricates, or develops critical technologies. It owns or operates certain critical infrastructure, or it maintains or collects, directly or indirectly, sensitive personal data of US citizens. So regarding critical technologies, a business that deals in certain technologies will need to assess, as part of the due diligence process, whether those technologies fit within the definition that CFIUS has provided in the regulations. One question is, do you produce, design, or deal in technologies that are either subject to U.S. export control licensing for national security reasons, for example, under either ITAR or the EAR, and that would be subject to licensing requirements if they were to be exported? This generally requires input from engineering or R&D colleagues in order to assess it. Another question is regarding critical infrastructure. Does your business manufacture or maintain, own, operate, supply, or service infrastructure assets, such as, for example, assets in the telecom, utilities, energy, or transportation sectors? And a third point is on sensitive personal data of U.S. citizens. Do you maintain or collect the sensitive personal data of uh, U.S. citizens, which may include a wide variety of data, financial data, health-related data, biometrics, geolocation data, et cetera. Then finally, as Joe mentioned earlier, you have contracts with government entities in the United States, whether at the federal, state, or local level, and what kind of services or products are being provided under those contracts. Are the contracts sole source? Can other companies provide the same or similar items or services, or is the 
relevant government entity reliant on you. And also, as I think Joe alluded to, if your offices or facilities as the U.S. business are located near U.S. government facilities, such as military bases or ports or restricted airspace, that's also relevant to consider. Excellent. Thank you both. So what enforcement trends has CFIS identified and how will this impact filed or not filed transactions going forward? I think the most significant development in terms of uh, enforcement trends is CFIUS's increased focus on non-notified transactions, which means covered transactions for which the parties to the deal have not made a CFIUS filing. Now, historically, CFIUS has always kept an eye out for press releases and public regulatory filings with the SEC or uh, foreign equivalents thereof, or looked for investor communications to identify potentially covered transactions that in its view may present national security issues, but for which no filing to CFIUS was made. But this enforcement activity has become more formalized with the public introduction of the Monitoring and Enforcement Office, which Chris has mentioned, which is dedicated to monitoring and in some cases investigating foreign investments in the US that are not submitted to CFIUS for review, as well as overseeing compliance with CFIUS mitigation agreements that were required for prior CFIUS approval of certain transactions. Our sense is that additional resources that are flowing to CFIUS, including through the CFIUS filing fees that took effect last year, this is enabling uh, this increased enforcement activity by the committee, uh, which among other things also includes a new email tip line by which members of the public can contact the M&E office with relevant information regarding proposed or completed investments in or acquisitions of US businesses that is within CFIUS's authority to review. Now, based on public information released by CFIUS through the unclassified version of its annual report to Congress, CFIUS, in our view, was fairly aggressive this past year in investigating prior transactions some of which may have closed several years ago or more, though actually the amount of deals for which CFIUS actually requested a filing was fairly limited. And while we don't want to inundate people with too many numbers, out of 117 investigations in 2020, only 17 of them, or around 15% or so, actually resulted in filings. So from a corporate perspective, uh, in addition to, to planning for CFIUS, one of the, the key issues, not only in CFIUS, but, but overall, is uh, promoting deal certainty. So I think that uh, parties on both sides of the transaction, when assessing whether they are in a, not a mandatory, but in a voluntary filing scenario, they need to then uh, assess whether to make that voluntary filing. And in so doing, they should bear in mind that CFIUS is investigating the non-notified transactions, may well uh, have awareness of your particular deal and could investigate. And again, as I mentioned before, if we think this presents some national security issues, uh, but we're not in a mandatory, but rather in a voluntary scenario, we may want to start off on the front foot with CFIUS uh, for the optics of it and ultimately try to get the approval for, for deal certainty. And you know another another important point to note, Kristen, on enforcement trends is is mitigation measures. Mitigation measures can impact 
the initial filing that parties make in CFIUS, and they're also relevant to CFIUS's ongoing monitoring and enforcement function. As a starting point, there weren't any penalties for major violations of mitigation agreements in CIF, by CFIUS in 2020. Remediation activities were put in place for three agreements relating to minor violations, but CFIUS took no other enforcement action in 2020. As a general matter, mitigation measures impacted just over one in 10 CFIUS filings made by notice last year. These are cases where the parties accepted mitigation measures or where the parties withdrew their notice rather than implement the mitigation measures that CFIUS requested. Worth noting, however, that the number of transactions cleared with mitigation measures is down from previous years. Parties should also be aware that CFIUS continues to monitor compliance once you've agreed and implemented a mitigation agreement. In 2020, CFIUS was monitoring 166 separate mitigation agreements. And CFIUS can also request changes to the mitigation agreements over time. There were a small number of outstanding mitigation agreements that were modified materially in 2020. Regarding the types of mitigation measures that CFIUS has imposed in the past, uh, there are a wide range of measures, including, as an example, requiring companies to establish protocols that limit access to only authorized persons for certain types of technology or sensitive information. CFIUS has also required companies to make structural changes, such as, for example, the establishment of a corporate security committee or other devices that would help enforce monitoring and police compliance uh, within an organization. And then you also see CFIUS requiring companies to implement traditional mitigation measures, such as the exclusion of certain assets from the transactions or divestment of the foreign investor of some, you know, from some part or from all of the U.S. business as a condition of closing. What else should our in-house audience know about CFIUS? Thanks, Kristen. In addition to what we've talked about today, the following are some key points for the corporate, the finance, and the legal in-house teams to keep in mind in, in our view. The first is, in recent years, there's been a general upward trend in CFIUS filings with a much broader interpretation of U.S. national security in many sectors, and we fully expect that to continue. Deal parties, parties to foreign investments can anticipate heightened CFIUS scrutiny of transactions, particularly in the technology, semiconductor, energy, and, and telco sectors, among others even when there are no direct U.S. deal parties, but the transaction would result in foreign control of a uh, foreign target's current U.S. subsidiary. One other development we've seen, Kristen, is there's a much greater focus on U.S. export controls. Uh, as a result of CFIUS's October 2020 regulations, which changed the mandatory filing requirements uh, with respect to certain critical technology transactions to focus more on the U.S. export classification of the technology in question. CFIUS really requires a more U.S. export controlled focused analysis at this point, in particular in the context of national security assessments that, that are under, undertaken by CFIUS. So U.S. companies can expect potential foreign acquirers to conduct a fairly detailed due diligence of the U.S. business in order to be able to address CFIUS and export control issues. This is one reason why U.S. companies and in-house counsel might want to address those issues internally before they reach out to bidders or investors. 
Yeah, that's that's right. I, I think overall, given the complexity of this CFIUS process, the authority the committee has, the potential for that process and that authority to impact foreign acquisitions and investments, the parties to the transaction or investment, including the U.S. company, need to assess as early as practical whether CFIUS is going to have jurisdiction to review the investment and how CFIUS might view any national security issues, and then think about how both the U.S. company and the foreign acquirer or investor can best prepare for CFIUS review if a filing looks to be mandatory or else it's a voluntary scenario, but the filing seems advisable. We focused a lot today on the challenges and complexities of CFIUS, and I think that's with good reason. All that being said, uh, the Treasury Department and CFIUS continue to emphasize that the United States remains open to foreign investment, including in the technology sector. And per the most recent CFIUS report, overall, a majority of transactions filed with CFIUS in the past year eventually did receive clearance. Thus, while the CFIUS process can be complex and it can be challenging, in the right case and with some proper planning across various functions in a company and with transparency to CFIUS, that process can be navigated to enable a clearance that accomplishes the party's underlying business, investment, and commercial goals. Thanks. Well, thank you, Joe and Chris, for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. We've certainly learned a lot. And I think that everyone will agree that understanding all these complexities from the beginning is better than finding them out on the back end. Agreed. Well, I hope you both can join us again and keep us updated on this and the other complexities of the regulatory landscape. It's been super rewarding and um, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Kristen. Thanks, Kristen, it's been a pleasure.